Welcome to Real Life. Today we will be continuing our series on the book of Philippians. Led by Charlotte Knight, this study breaks down each section within this book to really get into what Paul is writing to this church. It's our hope that through this class, you will gain a deeper understanding of how to interact with and study scripture. Let's get into it. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so short recap. We always want to start off with a recap. Chapter 1 of Philippians was about having a single mind, a mind focused on the gospel. Chapter 2 was about having a submissive mind, putting others above ourselves, submitting to one another. In chapter 3, we're talking about the importance of having a spiritual mind instead of a fleshly mind. And the overall purpose, of course, of the book of Philippians is for us to rejoice. He says that so many times. We need to be able to have joy even though we're living in a crazy world or in adverse circumstances. In order to do that, we need to make sure that our mind is in the right place. And that's where Paul is walking us through all of these things in the book of Philippians. Remember the context. He's in prison for preaching the gospel because he refused to be quiet when they told him to quit. He just kept preaching the gospel. And he was in prison, and he's writing this letter to the Philippians. They were being threatened um, at any point in time to have all kinds of things happen to them as well, even their life taken from them. So it's not a very good situation that they're in, and he wants to make sure that they can walk through this process and still have joy. In our section last week, Paul was warning the people warning us about trying to earn our salvation through works. He started talking to us about his past, giving us his resume, so to speak, letting us know it's all garbage, it's pointless. All of his titles, all of his labels, all of his personal identities were of no value in the kingdom of heaven. He closed the section by telling us about what he wants to do now instead which, of course, is to know Jesus, to have that growing, thriving relationship with Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of his sufferings, to become like him in his death and to attain the resurrection from the dead. And I'm sure that we are all in agreement that trying to work for our salvation could never bring us joy. It ends up bringing frustration and disappointment it will never bring us joy. Knowing that Jesus paid the price for us and set us free from that hamster wheel of trying to earn our own righteousness should bring us great joy. And as we've been learning, that process of knowing Jesus intimately is not an easy road, but it's well worth it, and it brings great joy. And the closer that you get to him, the more you know Jesus, the more you want to know him, and the more knowing him brings you joy. It's not because of what he does for us, but because of who he is. And a lot of times we focus on those things that he does for us because he does so many wonderful things for us. But it's because of who he is. And the more we know him, the more we want to know him and not just what he can do for us. And this week, Paul shows us what that relationship motivates him to do. 
He continues to show us what it means to have a spiritual mind. So we're going to go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all of this, meaning perfection and all of the things he talked about in the previous section, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. When you have a spiritual mind, you don't let things rob you of your joy. You look at things from heaven's perspective, not from earth's perspective. You don't get thrown off course by things behind you, things around you, or things that are in front of you. It frees you to fulfill God's purpose in your life, to run the race in the lane that was appointed to you to run. Keep in mind that Paul isn't talking to us to tell us how to be saved, because clearly he already talked about we don't work for our salvation. He already covered all of that. He's showing us that since we are already saved through faith in Christ, we have a responsibility to run this race, achieving the goals God has set for each of us. And this is part of that whole idea of working out our own salvation that he mentioned earlier. We have a responsibility to work out what God is working in. Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 24 says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task to testify to the good news of God's grace. He uses this running illustration many, many times. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So in this section of Scripture, Paul shows us five things that are essential to running this race that he keeps referring to. So let's dig into these verses and see what we can learn from Paul about what we need to run this race successfully. The first one, he shows us in verse 12 and the first part of verse 13, that he wants us to know to never allow yourself to feel like you've arrived. You need to be have a level of dissatisfaction with where you are in your relationship with the Lord. You have not attained it. 
always wanting to know Jesus more, to have a better understanding of the word, being realistic about your own human limitations, living a life of repentance. He uses this uh, phrase, press on. And this is a word that is often used for foot racing in Greek. And it also is a hunting term meaning to pursue. So he's telling us to run this race. He's telling us to pursue these things. Pursue. So it's active. We are actively involved in this process. And we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves to others. Like Paul talked about earlier, compare yourself to Christ, as Paul did. And then we realize we have a long way to go. If we compare ourselves to other people, that's how pride comes in, because we can say, well, at least I'm doing better than so-and-so. We're not supposed to do that. We read the Word of God. We compare ourselves to God's standard, not to other people. That is a dangerous thing to do. If we think we're more mature than the next person, we can get satisfied with where we're at and just stand there and stagnate. Our view of ourselves is often over-exaggerated. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. So there's an example of a church that thought more highly of themselves than they should have. And the Lord is saying, look, you need to wake up and realize that you have not arrived. You have not, you don't have it all together. There's still more for you to do. Continue, continue. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 17 says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We don't want to do that. We don't want to overestimate ourselves. We need to remember that we humbly walk with Jesus and we constantly have to rely on him. We don't do any of this in our own strength. None of it. We constantly have to rely on him. He is the one that we need. He is our source and our strength. We have nothing to brag about, so we can't let ourselves go there. We have to have that level of dissatisfaction with where we're at, or we will not press on. We will not continue to grow. To grow. And the NIV, which is what I normally read from, um, uses the word goal here it says i have not already I haven't already arrived at my goal um, and i think that they use that word because it ties better in with verse 14 which also uses the word goal is it makes it easier to make the connection there however um, most of the translations use the word perfect 
And when studying in the Greek, I think perfect is the better choice there. Um, but either way, you know, we get the same idea. But I think studying it using the word perfect gives us something extra that we can look at. Because if you, if you remember in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is something that Jesus wants of us. He wants perfect. However, that word there that Jesus is using is in the future tense. One of the, this is another one of those things about Greek that I really love. You study the verbs and you're like, wow, wow. It's in the future tense, which indicates the contemplated or certain occurrence of an event which has not yet occurred. So Jesus is telling you that you're going to be perfect you're going to be perfect. You're in process of perfection. And that's what he's telling you. And it's in middle voice, which means the subject is both an agent of an action and somehow concerned with the action. So you're actively involved in your perfection. Not that you control it, but you're actively involved in it. And it is a future action. So you see the process there that we play a part in. We do make choices all the time and whether or not we are moving towards that perfection or we're moving backwards or we're just going to stay still. The verb is also in what they call indicative mood, which means it's a simple statement of fact. If an action really occurs or has occurred or will occur, it will be rendered in the indicative mood. So this is not a maybe thing. It's not a maybe. It is a fact. It will occur. We will be made perfect, but we have a responsibility to walk towards that. Adds a little something extra to it when you know some of these things. I, I, love, I love studying, okay? I'm kind of a nerd. I'm just going to let you know <laughs> I'm kind of a nerd. I love to research and study. And you notice the beginning of verse 12 and also in verse 13, he repeats the same thought saying, I haven't obtained it. I haven't laid hold of it. He's really letting you know that even, even Paul, he's setting that example. I haven't reached it yet. You don't need to think that you've reached it because I haven't reached it either. But I'm leading you in that direction and we need to walk in that direction together. I found, I looked up the, the New Living Transa Translation of verse 12. Um, I don't have a copy of the New Living Translation at home. I'm surprised because I have so many others. But I really like the way that it worded it. It says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to pos possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Because clearly we know from what Jesus said in Matthew, be perfect. That is a goal that he has for us, is to reach that perfection, which we know we won't fully reach this side of heaven. But we need to live in reality, understand our human frailty, but also take responsibility for our own growth. Move forward. Don't stagnate. And certainly don't move backward. 
And think about it. If you're in a race, but you don't have the finish line in mind, or you don't really care about winning the race, you don't really care if you finish, you're not really interested in going further down the road, you're not going to run. You're just going to stay there. The mature person will take an honest assessment of where they're at and strive to move forward to grow. And yes, there are those times when we evaluate ourselves and think of ourselves as worse than we are. That does happen. I think more often we um, tend to over-exaggerate where we're at, but there are times when we kind of beat ourselves up a bit about where we're at. Why, why am I not like that person? Once again, comparing ourselves to other people. We get kind of self-loathing. Loathing. And this often happens because we forget how much God loves us and that he loves us when we're at our worst. I mean, he died for us while we were still sinners. And he doesn't expect that all of a sudden we're just perfect. Obviously, he said himself that it's a process. It's a future thing that we become perfect. But we forget that love of God, that unconditional love that he has for us. If an absolute, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing God can love me in my worst mess, what right do I have to beat myself up over my imperfections. I don't. I don't have that right. He loves me enough to die for me. He has high expectations of me because he knows my potential even when I don't see it. Don't allow yourself to feel defeated. That's what the enemy wants because a lot of times when we feel defeated, we give up. We just give up and we stop pressing forward. We can't do that. Remember how much God loves you. Remember what he did for you and that he's waiting for you at the other end of that finish line and we're going to get there we just have to keep moving don't stop romans chapter 7 verses 21 through 25 paul says so i find this law at work although i want to do good evil is right there with me for in my inner being i delight in god's law but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think what a vulnerable thing for Paul to say. He's showing us that I have this same war going on that we all have it's a war it's the enemy is fighting for our mind and for our soul it's it's real it's there this is the reality that we live in but paul says how do i get out of this thanks be to god who delivers me through jesus christ our lord once again everything that god requires of us he provides for us i want you to be perfect i'm providing that perfection all you got to do is keep moving keep moving keep walking towards it press on we have to have that certain level of dissatisfaction with where we're at or we won't keep moving 
Not only do we need dissatisfaction, but he also tells us the second thing we need is devotion. The second part of verse 13. The second part of verse 13, he says, he talks about the one thing. The one thing I do. And this phrase, one thing, is used a lot in Scripture. I'm going to read a a few verses so that we can get the idea of what this usually conveys when we're talking about the one thing, this phrase. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. This is when Jesus is talking to the rich man who's asking him, what can I do to be saved? Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. The guy's asking a question, what can I do to be saved? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. One thing, Jesus said, one thing. Because he knew the guy's heart. He was speaking directly to an issue that he knew he had. That was the one thing for him. Luke chapter 10, verses 41 and 42. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The one thing. John chapter 9, verse 25. This is after Jesus healed the man who was blind and people were asking him if they thought Jesus was a sinner. And he responded by saying, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Psalm 27, 4, another one of my favorite scriptures. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The one thing. Sometimes we fill our life with so many things, and they make good things, but we haven't really found the one thing. If you're familiar with the evangelist D.L. Moody, have you guys heard of D.L. Moody? You know who he is? D.L. Moody, if you don't know who he is, I suggest you Google him and and learn a little bit about D.L. Moody. Interesting guy. He was very active in many things. He taught Sunday school. He was very active in the YMCA work, uh, going to different evangelist meetings, traveling, and that kind of thing. After the Chicago Fire in 1871, he decided, he decided to devote his life to just one thing, evangelism. As a result, millions, millions of people heard the gospel through his ministry. It's estimated that he preached the gospel to over 100 million people. That's huge. So devoting your life to the one thing is important. If you're running a race, you don't become better by playing golf. You want to be running a race, you need to work on things that make you faster, stronger runner. 
athletes get to be the best in their sport by focusing on those particular skills that hone that sport. There are very few people, there are some, but there are very few people that can really excel at multiple sports. You have to focus on the one thing. You have to be devoted to that one thing. We need to have that level of dissatisfaction. We need to have devotion. And the third thing we need is direction. Still in verse 13, the very last part of verse 13, we see here direction. When Paul is talking about his one thing, what's he talking about? For him, it was a matter of direction. Moving forward toward Jesus, closer to Jesus. Whatever you're into, if it doesn't bring you closer to Jesus, it's not worth it. Forget what's behind. Don't be controlled by your past. Don't go back there. Forgetting doesn't mean you no longer remember it. Obviously, we know that. But it means you're no longer influenced by it. It no longer controls you. That old person is dead. With all his labels and identities, we are born again into new life. The power that the past had over us is broken. It's gone. And we can't, we can't change the past. We can't. But we can change the way we view it, and we can change what the past means for us. And just as a, a personal example, now it's my turn to be vulnerable with y'all. Hope that's okay. I think we need to practice being vulnerable with each other more often because we need to let each other know that we're not perfect. We haven't reached that perfection yet. And this has just been recently. So this is not like years ago and now I'm this super Christian. So I was in church during worship and we were singing the song, um, The Goodness of God. If you don't know it, you know, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Well, as I'm singing this song, I heard a voice in my head that said, how can you sing that, knowing the things that have happened? How can you really say all your life, God has been faithful and good, knowing what all the things that have happened in your life, how can you sing that? And I remember thinking, what are you doing here <laughs> You need to get away from me because God is good. And it was so awe-inspiring. I don't even know how to describe it, but at that moment, I remembered things that I hadn't thought about in a while. And I remember God giving me a scripture, which we read part of it earlier in, from Psalm 27, that um, but verse 13 specifically is what he reminded me of at that moment that says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I remember when the Lord first gave me that verse, it was years and years ago when I was just a new Christian, he gave me Psalm 27 as something for me to cling to. And that whole Psalm 27, I'm like, man, that just, that's, that's me. That's, that's me. 
But this verse in particular, I remember thinking about this verse, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I kept thinking, wow, there's going to be some point in my life where I'm not going to have any problems. And everything's just going to be good. I'm just going to see the goodness of God on this earth. And I don't have to wait to get to heaven to see the goodness of God. And I can't wait. I'm so excited. And, you know, it's like I kept waiting for that to happen. When are all my problems going to be gone? And for some reason, it just, it didn't happen that way. But God was showing me all this stuff. And then I realized, wait a minute. I can look at all those things that happened, and now I can see the goodness of God in those things. In all of those bad circumstances, all of the things that happened, I can see God's goodness in it. Whereas before, I couldn't. You know, you get so busy focusing on all the negative stuff. This is horrible, and I can't stand what's going on, and you get so frustrated. You can't see the goodness of God. You can't see his hand in it. But all of a sudden, I could. And I'm like, oh, that's it. I can see the goodness of God in the land of the living because I can see his goodness in the midst of horrible circumstances changed everything changed everything it was amazing and now every time i hear that song is just so powerful to me because i really can see the goodness of god in everything sometimes it's not immediate i'm going to be honest there are times that i'm still like okay lord help me see that goodness in there but he helps me to see it so sometimes we have to rethink how we see things that happened to us in the past, things that we walked through, dumb decisions that we made and consequences that we faced because of it. We have to redefine our past and see the goodness of God in it. Sometimes it's not the bad things of our past that distract us. Sometimes it's the good things from our past that keep us from moving forward. We don't want to get stuck there either, but we know what happens. We think about the good old days, or we think about how things used to be, and we want to go back there, but we're supposed to keep moving forward, not go backward. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19, says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. But when we think about right now in the culture and the times that we live in, you know, we see people constantly falling away from the faith. We see division like never before. We see people hating each other. We see violence and crime like never before. And the increase of Christian persecution all around the world is just 
off the charts. And that persecution is knocking on our door in America as well. What about, how about us? I mean, how do we, how do we keep from wanting to go back to a time that wasn't so volatile? Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus told us that these things are going to happen. But he tells us to stand firm. Don't let your love grow cold. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. Again, he's talking about the end times. Jesus says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And this should be our response. We stand up. We lift up our heads because we know that our redemption is drawing near. And that new temple will be greater than any experience that we've ever had here on this earth. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 14. But do not forget this one thing. There's that one thing again. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. We know what was prophesied. We know. And we see these things happening. But we're not to lose heart. It should encourage us to know that the word of God is true. Everything that he says will come to pass. And we have so much to look forward to on the other side of that finish line. Paul tells us here in Philippians that he is straining towards what is ahead. Stretching, 
Not only are we to look forward to it, but we are putting effort into getting there. Prayer, preaching the gospel, we need to hasten his coming by moving forward. We need a level of dissatisfaction, we need devotion, and we need direction. And the fourth thing that we need is determination. He shows us in verse 14, there's that word press on. Means speeding on earnestly or pursuing. And he says, what we're pursuing, the prize. But that's very vague, right? What, what does he mean by the prize? The Greek word that is used here is one that they were all very familiar with from all the competitions that were going on in the Roman Empire. They had a lot of different sporting events and things that they did. And the winners of the various games came before the judge to be given their prize. And that's what this word meant to them, coming before the judge to be rewarded for winning whatever the game or sport you were involved in. And the Bible talks a lot. There are many verses about rewards that we will receive in heaven, being given a, a crown and that kind of thing. I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what the prize or rewards that they're talking about in all these verses. But as I said last week, if you, if you recall, and I think Paul would agree here based on the things he said, I'm not straining towards heaven for some reward in the way my fleshly mind can think of what a reward would look like. I'm not able to even think of what that would look like. You know, like I talked about the promise of seeing my loved ones when I go to heaven. I, I see my reward as being Jesus himself. I see my reward as hearing Jesus say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I mean, when we think of prizes and rewards, our fleshly mind automatically goes to things like gold medals and trophies and Super Bowl rings and winning the lottery and being given a new car, which, you know, is awesome, and a trip to the Caribbean. I'd love to win a trip to the Caribbean. But in heaven, I mean, it's an absolutely perfect environment where I've finally reached that perfection. All of my questions have been answered, and I finally know fully what before I only knew in part. There's no more tears, no more sin, no more temptation, no evil, just complete peace. Being in the presence of God, seeing Jesus face to face, what other prize could possibly be given that would compare to any of that? We need to be determined to reach the prize. Earlier, um, we read a scripture, I think it's that same scripture, from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes 
on the prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Paul tells us that determination to win the race is essential. And he tells us that we need dissatisfaction, devotion, and direction. The final thing he tells us that we need is discipline. In verses 15 and 16, he starts talking about maturity. Those of us who are mature should take such view of things. And I looked up the definition of discipline in a dictionary that was not Bible-related, just our English word discipline. What does it mean? Training expected to produce a specific character or pattern of behavior, especially training that produces moral or mental improvement. It also means control obtained by enforcing compliance or order. Controlled behavior resulting from disciplinary training or self-control. And that definition came from the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language. This idea of maturity or perfection brings us to understand that discipline is part of the equation. Training brings maturity. We think about parenting. When we're parenting, we are training. We use discipline to train our children to do the things that they need to do, to be the kind of people that they need to be. Training in athletics brings a level of perfection, remembering, of course, that even professionally trained athletes are not completely perfect. They will occasionally make a mistake. You need to remember, it's always a process, always a process. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Then, he, then Paul uses this phrase, live up to what we have already attained. Live what you trained for. Put to use what you've learned. You know, I've, I, I hear a lot of people will say something like, you know, God doesn't speak to me. Yet if you ask them, well, what was, when was the last time you heard God speak to you? And they never did what God wanted them to do that time. So why do you expect God to keep speaking to you if you're not even willing to do what he already told you? Live up to what you've already attained. I mean, just all the things he's spoken to us in here, we have a hard time doing all that. But we walk in repentance. We walk in repentance. It's that constant cycle. Okay, Lord, I know I'm not perfect. I can't measure up to that level. I need you. I need your forgiveness and your grace. And thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. Live up to what you have already attained. Live up to what the Lord has expected of you. 
already. Some of the commentaries that I was reading about this section said that there, there was an actual group of people that thought that perfection on earth was possible. They thought once you get saved, you are automatically perfect. Seems weird to me, but that's what they're saying. So there are several commentaries that said that same thing. And that's why Paul needed to address that. He says those that think differently that there were a group of people that thought differently about that process of perfection that he was talking about. The whole idea is that he wants us to understand that we are in a process. We are in training. We're running a race. We haven't arrived. We have not yet grabbed hold of it. We need to think that we need to remember that we need to keep moving forward, straining towards what is ahead. And then he says at some point God's going to make it clear to you if you do think differently, if you think that you're perfect, at some point God's going to point out that you're not. And boy, does he ever do that for me. I'm reminded constantly that I'm not perfect. We're going to be in situations where we're going to realize, oh, I haven't arrived yet. Clearly, I don't have it all together. And we have the, those constant reminders to keep us humble and remind us that we're still in process. We still need the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. And Paul made it, he, Paul said he was confident that the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth to him. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and always live that lifestyle of repentance. It should always be our response. And sometimes it's hard to admit that we've fallen short once again. Uh, a lot of times we try to justify or make excuses, but our response should always be repentance. Lord, I know that that wasn't what you wanted me to do, and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to run in the right direction. Revelation chapter 3 verse 19 says, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And another scripture that we read earlier, and, you know, sorry for the repetition, but it needs to be said again in this spot. Romans 7, verse 21 through 25, when Paul is saying, I find this law at work in me. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. He's talking about that war inside himself. And once again, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knows that that is everything. Our salvation, everything that we're reaching for, everything that we're becoming is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't give up. We don't give in to our flesh. We don't go back to our old ways. We press on, keeping our eyes on Jesus, living up to what we already know to be true, and continuing to learn along the way, knowing him more and more, knowing him deeper, knowing the word better, keep moving forward. And we stay in that race, we continue moving forward by having that level of dissatisfaction with where we are, wanting to keep going, having that devotion, knowing the one thing, the direction, moving forward and not backward, that determination, and that discipline. 
moving forward and keeping our mind on spiritual things, not on fleshly things. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we're pressing in closer to him, we have joy. When we start looking at all the other things, that joy begins to fade. So keep that spiritual mind and keep moving forward. That is Paul's message in this section. Now we're almost done with chapter 3. Next week we're going to dig in to those few verses that are on the end there. But even though it's such a small section, there's a lot of meat there that we'll cover next week. So you don't, you don't want to miss that. It's going to be a good one.